0: Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Rashad. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine We're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Guys, welcome to the Greatness Machine. I'm your host Darius Mashazde, and boy, do we have a special guest, my main man, Derek Coburn. Is he, Coburn? Excuse me, is in the house. What's up, my brother? What's up, man? It's good to be here with you. Excited uh, to spend some time with you. Yeah, we're gonna have some fun, guys. Uh, as you guys know, those who are, who are loyal audience to the Greatness Machine, the Greatness Machine is about two things. We're about those who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And my main man, Derek here, is both living lots of passion, lots of greatness. We're going to be diving into that in just a second. But hey, I always like to start off with a little bit of an origin story. Do you mind if I uh, give a background on how I connected with you? That'd be awesome. So those of you guys that follow the show know that I got sucked into the rabbit hole known as Clubhouse back in January. I even did a podcast episode about it. And I mean, I was like sucked in like bad. I was like, man, this is like crack. (laughs) Not that I've done crack but I could understand. I was super addicted to it for a hot minute. And, and there was this guy in, in the room. We were in a bunch of the same rooms together, these business rooms. And I heard Derek talking about this business we're going to be talking about that he's in Cadre. And and I was like, man, this guy seems super interesting. He's doing events. He's bringing in some really cool speakers. Man, I want to connect with him. And there was a handful of people that I reached out to offline. Derek was one of them. We ended up connecting and and he even connected me on one of the one of our previous guests, uh, Victoria, that was uh, that was just on the show. And and man, I'm so happy to have you here. So thanks for connecting with me, brother. We're gonna have some fun right now. Awesome, dude. Let's do it, guys. I also like to dive into the formal bio once I tell you how I met the person who's on the show or guests on the show. So I'm gonna read it so I don't butcher it because I always butcher everything when I don't read it. Derek Coburn is the author of networking is not working and the co-founder and CEO of Cadre an unnetworking community in Washington DC which currently supports over 100 CEOs and business leaders he's also an entrepreneur a family man all-around badass and we're going to be diving into like well, you know what is Cadre you know how did you get to what you got into on the entrepreneur side i know you're you're we're talking about earlier on the show that you sold a business that you're you're still in as an employee for the first time in your life, and so I'd love to hear a, a lot about how did you get into entrepreneurship. You know, you know everyone kind of finds their path in their own funky way. Where are you from? Just yeah, let's start from the beginning, man. Cool, man. Let's do it. So
1: I um, my, in my junior year of college, uh, I had a, I took an internship with American Express Financial Advisors, where I essentially was cold calling for a couple of the financial advisors and. You know, I think just because I had developed a muscle for dealing with rejection, a muscle for not taking rejection personally, it allowed me to, to be better, I think, than most people when it came to cold calling. And I was so good at it, in fact, that the head of the office, who oversaw like 150 financial advisors at the time, had me give a talk. Um, at the end of my internship to the advisors who's actually whose actual job it was at the time to sort of do this about how to do it more successfully. And so that was kind of a good, um, a good indicator for me that that was probably the right career path for me going out of college. I had multiple offers. I ended up starting my career with Mass Mutual as a financial advisor. And back then, you know, there were not financial planning majors at colleges like there are now you were successful or not based on your ability to rack up a bunch of appointments, meet a lot of people, and again, deal with the rejection. I was making 500 cold calls a day for probably three, four, five years. And I knew exactly how many phone calls I needed to make to know how many would pick up the phone, how many would give me an appointment, backing out the people that that canceled on me or stood me up. And all the way down to how much money I would I would probably make at the end of the year. And so um, that was my initial sort of launch into my professional career. I eventually transitioned. I got to a point where I had a nice client base and I didn't have to cold call anymore. Even though I was good at it, it wasn't something that I loved to do for obvious reasons. And I shifted my time and attention to going to networking events and And I think and I talk about this in my book, like I think that the difference between going to these catch all networking events and cold calling is that you're not having people slam the phone down on you. You're not getting stood up for an appointment. You can go to networking events and have perfectly nice conversations with perfectly nice people all day long. And if you're not paying attention, you probably won't realize that you're wasting a lot of your time. And so I started, um, in, instead of doing the big networking events, I started curating my own smaller events where I would invite my existing clients, my existing strategic partners, and have them invite guests and create these roundtables where everyone would talk about their business and how we could help each other out. And, and eventually that turned into Cadre, which we started in 2011. So we're celebrating our 10th year this wow. year. And essentially just took a lot of what I learned about how to connect with people in support of my wealth management business and started offering it as a way to bring CEOs and entrepreneurs in D.C. together. Uh, So I'll pause there to see if uh, if you have any questions or if you want me to keep going. But that was sort of how we arrived. And I've been sort of running both businesses in tandem uh, side by side ever
0: since. Yeah. Wow. There's so much there's so much meat on this bone. So I want to back up. Uh, Are you from the mid-Atlantic area originally?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in between Baltimore and D.C., closer to Baltimore. So I identified with with, um, you know, being from there. But uh, that was, you know, I moved back there to in after college in 1998 for a few years and I was close enough to D.C. I realized that one thing that people that are not from Baltimore uh, might not know is in Baltimore, the way a lot of business gets done, it's how you answer two questions. Uh, What high school did you go to and what company does your daddy work for? And if you don't have great answers to those two questions, you're sort of fighting an uphill battle. I mean, like literally you could go to Harvard Law School and that won't matter um, as much as if you went to one of the more prestigious private high schools in Baltimore. So I I saw D.C. and I started venturing to D.C. and I recognized that people in D.C. made more money. They didn't care where you were from. And um, at the time, the women were hotter. So um, <laughs> it made sense for me to, to drive there. And I started by scheduling 10, 12 appointments on a Tuesday in D.C. And then it got to the point where I had enough action that I could do two days in D.C. And then when it got to the point where I had three days of D- in D.C., I moved to D.C. in 2000. And I've lived in D.C. ever since. Just moved to the suburbs out of D.C. proper. It took a pandemic to get me and my family out of the city but uh, had lived there for 20 years
0: shout out to clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples hey there friends it's darius Shazda here and i have a little confession to make you see i've been battling allergies for years now and let me tell you they've been a real ordeal in my life allergies have been my constant companion they stopped me from fully enjoying the little things in life from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Your AI powered all star. Picture this a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. So. I grew a business in the mid Atlantic area for a hot second and I ended up, it was a joint metro accident out of, it was in Arlington, Virginia. That's uh, Oh, cool. Yeah. So it was off, uh, not George Mason highway, but Lee highway. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I, I spent quite a bit of time in the residence Inn in Arlington. Nice. Uh, yeah, a week out of the month, but I, it was funny that I learned two things. Now I actually lived in DC for a hot minute as well in 2000. I entered at the White House or under the Clinton administration, and so my, my cousin was living right outside of the Balston Station. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah. So I so I would commute in and then I ended up living in D.C. But I, I go back out there to, to run this business, and I get to work at like nine thirty in the morning, and nobody's there, and I'm coming in from San Francisco, which is where which is where I was living for a long time, and I'm like, where the hell is everybody? And my manager's like, ah, oh, the Beltway traffic's really bad, Darius. And yep. I said, "I said I'm from California, man. Like you can't tell me traffic's bad." So <laughs> one day, my brother schedules me to be it right outside Baltimore, Green. Can't remember the name of the city, but it's a little town outside Green. Something Glen Burnie. No, the name's not important. But he schedules me to be there at three o'clock in the afternoon for a meeting. So I leave at like two after lunch from Arlington. Or, excuse me, Fairfax. I was in Fairfax. That's where my office was. I drive to right outside Baltimore, and the meeting gets done at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Greenbelt, that's what it was. Greenbelt, Uh, there you go. I get done at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm done. Yeah, yeah, you know where this story's going. Oh, yeah. And I have to drive back to Fairfax. And I get on the freeway, (laughs) and I was like... I ate my words at that moment. From that moment forward, I was the manager of those cool with my because my staff was coming in. What I didn't know about mid Atlantic area, which is kind of an interesting thought around how business gets done there, is that you got a lot of people coming from Maryland, Virginia. I had people drive in from Pennsylvania, right. Mm -hmm. And I'm from California, like driving across straight lines is not normal, right? Yeah. So I live in Texas now and it's not normal here either. So that, that's, it, I learned a lot about the culture there. And one of the greatest things I learned about the culture of the Mid-Atlantic is like, the, the people are sold to the earth. Some of the best people in the world, in my opinion. You you said, so you grew up in this environment. Where'd you go to college?
1: Salisbury, like in by the beach in Maryland.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a smaller school. Isn't that correct? Yep. Yeah. And so, so you get out of that and... When you were working for for uh, Mass Mutual and doing this and pounding the pavement, were you doing? Were you building like a local business? uh, Like was your network all local in that mid Atlantic tri state like kind of area? Yep. And so when you get out and you start moving into you know this this idea of you know warmer leads versus cold leads, right? Which is essentially cold. I I grew up in cold calling too, so it's one of those things, right? It's Have you ever seen the movie Free Solo?
1: Nope. Listeners. I, know, I know what it's about
0: though, yep. Yeah, it's a guy that climbs the face of El Capitan. And the part of his brain that has no fear like doesn't kick in. Like like the, the fear amygdala or whatever, like there's no fear re- response in his brain. They're running CAT scans and the guy like has no fear response. I actually think there's an element to that to people who are good at sales and good at cold calling. Like there's that... Like you just uh, doesn't phase you when you get told no. Do you think that was part of your success was you just didn't get fearful about being told no? How did that start? How did you go from this newbie kid essentially to crushing it and then teaching people how to cold call?
1: Uh, I I think for me, I had to learn more of the hard way. So I had a rough time as a kid, I think, getting getting along with other kids. Um just my mom, my mom has told me this story. I don't really remember it, but I guess when I was like eight or nine, I went and knocked on uh, a kid's door in the neighborhood to ask his mom why he didn't want to play with me. And then I moved to a new school and uh, a completely new county and ended up in a situation where I like was just not fitting in. And I think in hindsight, it was me trying to fit in. It was me trying to be somebody that I thought other kids would like and but I'll tell you, like, you know, one of the more obvious, you know, like really hard scenarios that I had to experience as a kid was in seventh grade. It was a new school. I had probably been there for three months. And I don't remember the, the chain of events that took place. But the result was I had an entire classroom of kids, 25 to 30 kids chanting, who do we hate? We hate Derek. And this this probably lasted like two minutes or so. And so I think that it was. And by the way, I have a theory, like I grew up um, and I just discovered this theory recently. I grew up in a home with parents that provided a really unconditional loving environment for me. And my mom thought I was like the greatest thing in the world. And so I think that as I have kids now, 11 and 8, two boys, and I'm seeing them start to have certain interactions with kids. You know, I think that I would come home and my mom would say, you know you're you're amazing you're perfect like if you had a conflict with some other kid it must be their fault um, oh. it's, not, it's not your fault and uh and so i think that i maybe never learned the lesson maybe I, history just kept repeating itself because i was literally like gosh i mean like how like why would somebody not want to hang out with me so all of this is to say you know a friend of mine told me a few years ago i'd shared that story and she said well that sort of sounds like the origin story of cadre to me and i was like what do you mean by that she's like well you wanted to create community and you went for the the interactions that you experienced as a kid. And I was like, oh, that's that's pretty interesting that I'll I'll add that on to my origin story. In addition to I just got you know beat up mentally, which built my rejection muscle, which was also a good story that worked for me for a while, too.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Kids can be dicks. That's for sure. I, I didn't have that happen to me in seventh grade, but I did get punched in the face for no reason. And that, hmm. which is like a physical manifestation of someone telling you you suck. And, and but I, I it, it's an it. too. what's that?
1: I've had that happen too.
0: Yeah, that happened a couple of times. I mean, I was kind of a smart ass. And, 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 uh, yeah, it, I don't think it's like that now. I think they just, they bully each other on Instagram instead, which is not, I have heard it's worse. I don't know. I, I guess maybe, maybe it is.
1: Well, I'll tell you, there's a professor, Jonathan Haidt, out of New York. He wrote Coddling in the American Mind. He's written a couple of really great books. And um, he actually said that um, the incidence of depression, of cutting, of suicide in younger girls has dramatically increased with the advent of social media. And it hasn't really moved the statistics in those categories for boys at all. And his rationale is... The way boys pick on each other and bully each other, it's physical, it's in person, the way girls tend to do it. It's more, you know, calling names, it's more, you know, shaming. And so the social media, uh, you know, he believes is 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 much more dangerous, you know, for girls that are like 10, 11, 12, 13 than it is for wow. boys.
0: Wow. Yeah. There's many reasons why I'm glad social media didn't exist when I was in junior high and high school. And that's probably, I mean, I don't know if that would have affected me because I was a boy, but, uh, but yeah, it's, I can't imagine. I mean, I have, I have an 11 year old and a seven year old and and I, I, they don't have phones yet. And I'm trying to keep them off of it as as long as I can for a lot of these reasons. Cause I'm like, Oh, they don't need this shit. You know, I don't want to deal with it. And, And my, my wife's like, Hey, you know, our oldest, he's the only kid that doesn't have a phone. And I'm like, Oh, well, it's COVID. So he's not going anywhere. You know, (laughs) you know, I'll I'll deal with it when I have to deal with it. But, but so that's, it's interesting how that how our our life experiences and I have some, some similar stories where, where I look now and I'm like, Oh, that's why I do what I do. Right. And and a lot of it is around, you know, getting community together and getting people to want to be a part of something greater than themselves. And when I, when I listen to your story about Cadre, that hit me right away. I'm like, Oh, this is a person that's trying to build community this is a person that's trying to elevate a collective whole and to do it in this interesting way i want to i want to b- back up though because you know i'm at, i'm on a part of my journey right now where i exited my business i know you exited your business a couple years ago i just did this past july and and i'm kind of playing around with what's next and i do believe there's an element of building community around what's next yep. and, so, and so when you decided you wanted to do that Was it with the intention of, oh, I'm going to use this as a business development tool? Or was it with the intention of, yeah, I just don't like the way these these conferences are run. I want to do my own thing.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I made a decision right away that since we were going to be charging money for Cadre, that it would be inauthentic for me to use it as a way to market my wealth management business. And, you know, when I was doing it before, I was just gathering people and I wasn't charging them because... I was doing it to build relationships, and the ancillary benefit would be, you know, clients, referrals, what have you. But, um, but I've never, I've never sort of used my, you know, um, my position in cadre to market my wealth management business. And sure, some people know what I do, and some people reached out, and we've worked together. But I never wanted to, I never wanted to mix those two up, if you will. Um, so Perfect. I ran them, I ran them very separately.
0: So originally, though, before, so it sounds like the cadre was born out of this thing where you were doing events for, for, to help build a kind of a, a ecosystem for generating biz dev. And then fr- from that, you, you pivoted to no, this is its own thing and I'm charging for it and they get to be a part of it. And I can't, it would be unethical for me to start like trying to, Sell my stuff, pimp my, my stuff out to people. Exactly. But early on, it was born out of this idea of of doing uh, of building a, an ecosystem for for lead management or for building clients. Is that is that a correct understanding?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yep. And it was also just me being wired as a giver, me being wired as somebody that wanted to that loves connecting people, and so I was never like. Like really overtly pitching or in fact, like when I would bring people together, I would say, like, talk about your business here, but don't follow with anybody later to say, hey, like, let's meet next week. So I can tell you even more about how awesome I am. So, you know, I understand. I've always understood it's it's a long game and building relationships. But it was, you know, you know, recognizing that I could ask my clients for referrals and I might get some referrals. Um, But um, I would increase the likelihood of meeting more people that would be good for me to meet if I if I had my clients invite their friends and their uh, colleagues to to come to events or to come to things that had nothing to do with with meeting a financial advisor. So I was hosting these roundtable lunches, which are still um, a core part of what we do with Cadre. I would host wine tasting events. There was a there was an article about five years ago that I read and it was based in the property and casualty insurance industry, which I don't really know much about. And it was a survey of clients, and uh, the clients were asked to sort of rate their relationship with their insurance producer. And uh, 10% of the people surveyed uh, said they loved their provider and would never leave them no matter what, like they just had this amazing relationship. So you look at the survey and you say, all right, the good news is only 10% of people out there love their existing provider. That means 90% don't love them. Well, the bad news is that only 10% disliked their existing insurance broker. Um, That's where, in my opinion, referrals and Google search and things like that come into play. I feel like the the biggest opportunity for most industries, for most of us, are the 80% in the middle. I call that the indifference category. Right, The people that like their existing person, fine. They they think they're doing a good job. They have other stuff in their life and their business that's more important for them to worry about right now. And for a lot of us, I think our ability to be successful in growing our business and reaching more of the people that we wanna work with is our ability to successfully disrupt that indifference. And I did that by, by, by finding things that had nothing to do with my core offering. Come to this wine tasting, come play golf, come to this roundtable lunch where we're all going to talk about our business. And that allowed me to meet, I think, a lot more people than I would have met. Otherwise, if I were just waiting around for, hey, do you want to meet my financial advisor and come into his office to learn more about the way he works?
0: Yeah, said nobody ever. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it's funny. So it's really creating an ecosystem for success, right? And surrounding yourself with people who you want to potentially do something with in the future, but doing it in a way where, Solicitation is not part of the equation, right? And that—that yeah. sounds—that's really smart. You know, obviously, the original idea is like, hey, I want to, you know, build this ecosystem and try to get business out of it. That pivots to, well, yeah, now I got these these wine tastings and golfs and lunches and, and you know the lunch and learns and 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 I'm bringing in speakers. And I and I recall when I heard you speak originally, is you guys were bringing in some pretty interesting speakers into cadre can you kind of talk about how how that how that really transformed you know when you decided you wanted to charge for it how did you go from okay great i got i'm gonna charge for this or i have this thing where i'm inviting people to do stuff and i'm just a giver to oh by the way i'm gonna charge for this now like that was there was there some uncomfort around that um,
1: not really. You know, we, um, you know, we found about 10 to 15 people. I run this. I run this organization with my wife, Melanie, and we had about 15 people that we reached out to, to be founding members. And we said, look, we want to try this thing. And the main idea was, we want to attract and retain people that have a give first mindset, people that are in a position where they can, they can give without the expectation of getting anything back. They have the luxury of being able to show up focused on how they can add value for other people as opposed to focusing on what they can get out of it. And so we had these founding members round up three to five people each. And then we, we pulled together uh, these, these individuals and for some of these lunches, these roundtable lunches that I had been running for my wealth management business for a few years, just to give them a flavor and a feel for what we were doing. And then we, uh, after they got to experience it once, we said, "Okay, we're going to launch this thing. We'll see if we get a critical mass." I knew even if, I guess I knew even if if no one wanted to do it, or if only ten people had said they wanted to do it, and and it would have never formed into a business. That that um, taking the approach that we did would have again allowed us to meet a lot more people that we probably would not have met otherwise. And so the first year we didn't do any larger events we had 79 of these roundtable lunches 79 i mean it was like you know we would book private rooms at restaurants and i had like a poster board with with people's names on it and the lunches they went to lunch we did eight lunches the first month this person was at lunch three at lunch 16 at lunch 22 and i would just be moving people around to try to make sure they get to meet new people and experience new people and new interactions and we never had the intention of doing a bigger event. Um, what, we weren't sure if we could translate the vibe, this, this sort of people, these people showing up truly looking to see how they can help other people. And um, finally, we got feedback from our members, which we do frequently. In fact, we, we just sent out like another round of feedback for our members this week. And um, they said, like, we'd love to try these bigger events. And so I I was friends at the time, still I'm friends, but friends with um, DeMar Smith, who's the head of the NFLPA. He had just sort of taken on that role. I asked him if he would um, speak at our first event. And that's what we did. Um, The next one that we did was actually with Chris Brogan. And um, Chris sent out an email on Christmas Day. I'm going to I'm about to show you how long ago this was. He was coming out with his new book on Google Plus. And he said, the first five people that buy 300 copies of my book, Google+, Plus, I'll waive my speaking fee for them. And he was charging, I think, 25 grand at the time. So I did that with him. And then it was sort of, I began to realize that one of the best ways to find amazing speakers is to find people who have books coming out. And a lot of authors, you know, end up leveraging their speaking as a primary marketing tool for moving their books. And so... I would say 75% of speakers that we've gotten over the past 10 years have been, um, have been authors coming out with books. And we haven't paid them what they're worth or what they're normally charged. But, but because they are interested in moving a lot of books at a certain period of time, um, it's been a way for us to, to get some pretty awesome people.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. So did you get my book that I sent you? Yeah. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure... I wrote a book in September and I was, I, because I exited my business, I was like basically just hanging out at the house and bored. And I got really aggressive about promoting the book. Yep. So I went out and started like really hustling, pushing the book, doing my thing. And when you're doing book promotion, which is uh, goes directly to what you're talking about right now, you've got it. You, you're trying to really get in front of a bunch of people. So you're, you're offering stuff like speaking, for people to get a bunch of books because you're trying to get the book numbers up because you want to get this critical mass. Yep. And so I, and you make, I'm still paying the the book. There's so much work I I'm doing where I'm like, Oh my God, I, I was, I was telling my assistant, I said, can they send the books back? And <laughs> and I'll buy the books back from them. And I don't want to do the work I told them I would do not speaking wise. A lot of it's like consulting stuff that I, that, cause my book's about how do you build a core value driven organization? So, so a lot of these folks, I'm building their core values for them. I I charge people like 50 grand to build their core values. And and they bought like 300 books. And I'm like, oh my man, I must have been really desperate to sell books. But uh...
1: (laughs) I mean, I don't think also, you know, you probably recognize this too. Like most 95% of authors, if you ask them, uh, if you ask to buy, 300 copies of their book six months after it's out, they're going to say no. no like, yeah, they're, they're only doing it for like that first week. You that, need to get like a critical mass in that first week. And and that's totally. where it pays off, I think.
0: Totally. So there's a guy named Scott Groves who he has a podcast and he's a friend of a friend and he recognized what you just recognized. And he's like, Hey, um, I have these three groups. I want you to come speak at how many books do I have to buy. Now I didn't, I'm totally green. So I didn't realize I, I should have, quoted a much bigger number for my book. So I'm like, ah, I don't know, man, you're cool. Like buy like know, 50, hundred copies of the book. And he's like, okay, well, I need you to speak at three events. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why? Like I'm to- like, because I had so much free time, I wasn't like managing my calendar that well. right? And so I end up agreeing to it. I sign. I do like three talks. It's like, you know, and now, then I got busy and I was like, why did I agree to all this? And, and then I, I, and I'm talking to him about it. And he goes, he goes, man, Always get authors on the first week of selling their books. He's like, they'll agree to anything. Yeah. And he told me he did this with Ryan Holiday, right? So he gets Ryan Holiday to come. He's like, I think I bought like $2,500 worth of books from Ryan Holiday, and he came and spoke at like five of my events. And he said, I, and this guy that charges like 25 to 50 grand to speak, right? So I said, Oh, that is such a great hack. Get people, and you know, get them to do the favorites when they need it most, which is that one week to your point. So that's really cool that you guys do that. Yeah, we've
1: had Ryan twice. Ryan's a friend of mine. Ryan, we, Ryan, uh, we had Ryan on his, um, you know, Stillness is the Key tour. It was the last in-person event that we did before COVID shut everything down. So, um, but yeah, look, it makes sense because, look, the idea, I think that in 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 the case of the majority of these authors, they're not trying to make a list for vanity reasons. What they recognize is that, you know, if you get on the list you stay on the list because the way most people buy books is they just go to the category that they want to buy, and the category might be the New York Times, or the category might be small business entrepreneurship, and and they look at the first six books that are there and they buy one of those. And so, you know, like we had James Clear, it's crazy. Like we had James Clear three or four years ago for Atomic Habits. James Clear is still on the New York Times bestseller list today. Wow. I mean, it just keeps going. Like when my book came out, I think I, I've sold over 50,000 copies of my book now in, in wow. eight different languages. I hit number one on Amazon and all of business for a day. But more importantly, I hit number one in four subcategories and I stayed number one in all four categories for like four or five months. It was crazy. Just I think people go there. They see the first book and they buy it. So yeah. that's the reason why it's worth it if it's done properly for these authors. I think to to speak in exchange for book sales.
0: Yeah, no, no. It's it's it, to your point. It's it's making the list to stay on the list. And, and and I was I was a green pea. I didn't I didn't fully understand. I had a book launch team, but I I was uh, I learned a lot through that experience. And it's 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 been cool though. Like like I, I do think having a book is, and I'd love to hear your experience about this. Um, from my experience. I, I tell everybody, I'm like, oh, you know, my book's going to be a sleeper. It's just going to be those ones. Cause I, cause I, I'm starting, you know, a, a good book. I have a friend, um, Hal Elrod, right? Who, yeah. who wrote Miracle Morning. And it oh, took yeah. two, to you, know, you know, Hal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, he, he's a friend of a friend, and I, bec- I become friends with him now. And, you know, essentially, I was talking about this with a friend, the friend who's the friend of a friend who introduced me to him. He said, you know, you need to meet Hal. It took two years for his book to take off. No, nope. and 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 he basically said was like, "Look, if you write a good book and you and you're tenacious enough, t- tenacious enough to stay out there, people will find out about it, and if it's good, more people will find out about it." I do obviously agree with you. Getting on a list and getting a lot of people to just pick pick the list is is the is the easier way to get in front of a lot more people. But what? Yeah, what are your thoughts on on as far as you know the books that have really transformed your business or? The, your experience with how your book has transformed your business. What are your thoughts around that? Is that that's two separate questions, right? Well, yeah, yeah, two separate questions. Authors that you've brought in that have really, you know, that you think that have had the most impact. Because we're talking about you bring a lot of authors into your business. So, which of those authors do you think, man, that person's really transformed? like the audience or the audience has really, you know, gotten a lot out of them. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then also for your business, you know, you wrote your book, you put it out there. How did that actually change your business in itself?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Ryan's one that, you know, we brought Ryan back twice because everybody loved him so much the first time. And he's got like a really interesting approach, um, you know, looping in stoicism and putting a modern kick and flavor on it. I just we just had Adam Grant for uh, for an event in February, and you know it's funny I met Adam over email because Give and Take came out about a year and a half after we launched Cadre, and I was like, hey man, like we we have this this entire organization that's built off of that's built around you know attracting and retaining givers and kind of what his whole book was about. And so we, we sort of hit it off and we developed the relationship over time. And, and uh, he took off really fast. I mean, I would have had him speak at Cadre sooner, but I mean, he, he blew up um, really quickly. So I was thrilled to get him for um, his, his recent book, Think Again, which is such a great book. It's one of the best books I've read in a long time. You know, So we've had a lot of great speakers. I mean, we've had Gary Vee, we've had Seth Godin, we've had Sally Hogshead, um, we've had a lot. And, and, uh, and, and I think now what I'm most interested in when it comes to speakers is I wanna find the topics and, and the experts speaking on things that, that are up and coming, that, I, uh, that are less about what my members think that they want and more about what I think they need. So we had a speaker in November, Annie Jean-Baptiste, who's the head of product inclusion at Google, right? If I would have, if I would have asked my members, who do you want, you know, what topics are you interested in? No one would have said how to create more, how to create better marketing, how to create better copy, how to create better products that are going to um, promote more um, inclusiveness with people. Right. And so, Like that's another way of saying that is I, from my point, I saw a lot of white people, white business owners that were raising their hands saying, "Okay, like I want to have a more diverse team. I want to have um, a more diverse client base, but but they're not showing up. Right. And so this is more about how do you change your messaging? How do you change where you market, where you post jobs so that if you want to have that realization that come true, then then you can go about doing it. So I try to have a, a nice mix between people that are really well-known and people that are up and coming under the radar, leveraging the trust that I earn from my members of my community for bringing in the Ryan holidays and the Gary Vanderchucks to say, now I've got this person you haven't heard of before, but I think you're going to really like what they have to say.
0: Oh, I love that, man. That's, that's cool. And it, it, you get a nice sprinkle of folks who to your point there's some brand equity around their books or their name like of gary v or you know adam grant's great example and Ryan holiday too well hey i'm gonna actually gonna introduce you to i'm gonna give you value where you because there's plenty of people that are gonna get those get three guys to come speak right yeah. but where if you're where you're curating that new voice before there was gary v was gary v gary v was some guy that gary vaynerchuk that you didn't know he was right yeah. And yeah. then he blew, he blew people's mind. I had that experience, by the way, uh, in 2009 with Simon Sinek. Mm. You know, I met Simon Sinek when he was and and um, Tim Ferriss. I heard both of them speak in small groups that I was a part of through Entrepreneurs Organization. And I hung, I went and had a, a, to a Mets game with Simon and hung out with him for a day. Wow, know. that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, was just like, but he, like he would have a book and he have a he had no book and no TED Talk. Nobody knew who oh. he was, but uh, he gave me he used to give these little like coins. And I and it was funny because he blew up the same thing real quick, really quickly. And I said, Oh, your your work's really cool. I gotta to introduce you to my friend. He has a private call with my friend. Like and I can't the guy doesn't even respond to emails anymore. But but yeah. the, the the funny thing is is everyone's somebody, you know, before they're somebody, right? And that's right, man. Yeah. And that, that's really cool that you guys do that. Going to your book now though, I'd love to hear about how, how that came to be and how that kind of supports what you're doing with Cadre
1: yeah so you know i think maybe unlike your book because i was going to mention regarding your book that if you assuming you're still interested in doing this like you said you can charge fifty thousand dollars to help people write their core values i mean i think that the other type of speaker that we get right it's the speaker that that maybe they don't have a book but they have a message that even though we're not letting them pitch um, you know, my friend Mark Sheridan says the best compliment any speaker can get is that people come up to them after they're done speaking to say, how can I get more of that? And so I think that for somebody that has like a 10 or a $50,000 offering, if you can get a captive audience and you can just educate and provide value, then, then that could work out for you. Me, on the other hand, I didn't have like, you know, a course, when my book came out, I tried one later it didn't work out super well. And, you know, I, I think it was like about a week after my book came out, I got uh, a call or an email from from the Pet Sitters um, Association of America. And they offered me five thousand dollars and my travel paid to come to Vegas to speak at their convention. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And then like two days later, I'm like, well, I don't have anything to sell. Um, Cadre was just D.C. based at the time. Uh, I'm probably going to spend $5,000 in three days while I'm in Vegas and (laughs) away from my family. So so I backed out of it, you know, and and I you know, there's a, a mantra that I've sort of adopted that I borrowed and tweaked from the pastor of my church, which is I want to be more famous in my own home than I am anywhere else. And I try to use that really. I like speaking. I think I'd be good at it if I did it more. And I think I'll do quite a bit of it in the future. But again, my kids are 11 and eight right now. And um, I think that the speaking opportunities, if that's, you know, the plan for me, will be there 10 years from now. Um, uh, But for now, uh, again, also because I don't have anything on the back end, you know, not that I'm going to be directly pitching, but I... I don't have an answer, you know, the answer to my question, people come up to me after I speak to say, how can I get more of that? The answer is like, I told you everything that I got. So, um, so it it was more of a book that I felt like would help a lot of people. And I wanted to get it out there to add value and less about, um, you know, a driver of business for me.
0: It's funny, like you and I did this, when I wrote my book, I was I was still CEO of my company and I had a thousand employees. I, I, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to go promote the book. I, I literally did it because I had been helping CEOs, friends of mine and all these entrepreneur groups, like answer their core value questions for for like a decade. And I literally, you just said something that reminded me of, of why I wrote the book. I got asked by a friend who I helped him build his values to come do a talk at like the largest orthodontics conference in the United States. And I was like, I'm not doing that, man. I'm busy, you know, but he's a friend and I wanted to support him. So I said, sure, I'll come. I said, I'll come, but it's got to be a fireside chat and you got to interview me. And so I come and do it. And there's about, I don't know, 600 people or something in the room and it, it's an orthodontist conference so you got to yeah. imagine they're talking about some pretty boring stuff that like even an ortho i mean i sat and listened i said i don't care if you're this is your field or not it's boring this yeah. is, it's it's really technical content and so i get up there and, and i'm i kind of have a little gary v in me like where i'm i talk shit and i yeah. and, and i'm not and i don't care who i impress because that's not, i'm not trying to be a professional speaker for a living like i i do care i want them to give give value, but I, but I'm, I don't want to go travel around the world 200 times a year to talk. Like, I'm just going to tell my content and it is what it is. Yep. And at the end, I had this like line of people. It was like a hundred people waiting to come. Talk. And I'd never, and I'd never done a keynote before. And so I didn't, I don't know what that, I, I had zero experience with talking in front of groups and, and having any type of response. And the, and the first person says, is there like a course I could take on this or a book I can read or a class? I said, I, yeah, I don't know. I, this is all my work. Yeah, I, I would go and I, I didn't have an answer for her. second question. Is there a book I can read or a class I could take on this to your point? Like the biggest co- I didn't realize you just I, gave me a huge compliment by way of the compliment. You said your friend said that is right. Yeah. And so uh, by the sixth person, Derek, I was like, oh, yeah, the book's coming out in June. <laughs> that was yeah. the re- the reason I wrote the book was because of what you said. Yeah. Uh, Uh, it was this compliment that was paid that this is a value and and I got to get it out of my head. But it was to your point, it wasn't done with the intention of it becoming a business just now when, by leaving the business and having the space and not having something to put my energy into the book became the thing to put the energy into. And then I started helping people and saying, well, if I'm going to help them, then they got to pay for it because uh, to your point, I'd rather go be the biggest fan of my kids. Yeah. You know, if they want my time, they could pay for it and I'm, and I'll create something beautiful for them. But but yeah, that's cool, man. I love that that idea around... Say that quote again around the biggest fans you wanted, the fans in the home. You, you, the quote you said was perfect. I'm butchering it right now. I
1: want to be uh, I want to be more famous in my own home than I am anywhere else.
0: I love that. That's it's cool, right? That's so cool. I thought you were going to say something, something else. Do you want to hear what I thought you were going to say? Sure, of course. So I, I heard a quote once, which is that, I want to be famous where everyone knows my name and they don't know my face, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought you were going to say that, but I want to be more famous in my, say it one more times. I want to be more famous in my own home than I am anywhere else. And that just hit me. That's so cool. So let's talk about that. You know, with, with, you know, you've exited your, your, your last business, you're still there. How much longer are you in the wealth management game for?
1: I think it's going to be a while, man. You know, not much has changed. Uh, I'm still working the same way that I've always worked. Um, they leave me alone for the most part, so it's sort of still like my partners and I are running our own firm. And so I do have like an earnout over the next two years, but I have like no intention of getting out. It was just more of a you know of an infusion of capital, more of a, a merger to give us access to to more resources and kind of like a good oh. deal for everyone. So I'm. Um, I might rework, you know, the deal that I have with them right now. But uh, but yeah, not really planning on. In fact, the second book I'm working on right now is gonna be more tied to the the wealth management business. But it's it's I mean, my my flow, my day-to-day is still, you know, is still kind of what it's been for the past couple of years.
0: Are you guys an RIA? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have a buddy, I a really good friend that run an RIA out of California and, and they partnered with a company called Merchant. Okay. Uh, um, I don't know if you know those guys, but but the same deal. that They did. They bought a minority stake, or you know, I think it's different deals for different RIAs. They yep. bought a stake, and then now they have like a merchant bank essentially and a family office, and it's, it really gives them some economies of scale to offer to their book. They're yep. about two billion dollar RIA now. So yeah, we just had uh,
1: we just had a billion dollars of assets under management for our. Personal wealth management clients last week, and we've wow. we got like about three, including our four hundred one k and retirement planning. But oh uh, man,
0: congratulations! That's huge. Yeah, thanks, man. That's really cool. So, so you got that kind of steady as she goes, and you got. Cadre. Let's talk about the future of Cadre and the new book. And and, and the new book is obviously Wealth Management. So maybe we go there first and then we talk about the future of Cadre. So talk about the new book and then we'll talk about Cadre.
1: So, you know, I realized that um, I think collectively, like maybe the best thing that I had done collectively for the majority of my clients was uh, helping them realize, come to the realization that they were never going to want to fully stop working. So I work, I would say probably two thirds, 50% to two thirds of my clients are partners of big law firms and they're making like two, three, four million million a year. And I'm not talking like, you know, billing 2500 hour 2,500 hours a month into their 70s or 80s, but I'm talking, um, you know, working, you know, 10, 15 hours a week, doing some consulting work, some freelance work, some chief, you know, outsourced chief legal officer work, some, you know, serving on a board. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize how unhappy they're going to be sitting on their front porch drinking lemonade for 30 years. And they're planning their lives like we've all picked a number. It's 665 for most people, if you were to ask them. So I need to retire at 65. I need to have a certain amount of money. And I think people are making a lot of sacrifices in terms of the way they're spending their time with with their family, the way they're investing in their health, the way that they're investing in their relationships in favor of you know making sure they have this number. And I think they're gonna get to that point. And then after a year, they're gonna say, well, I'm kind of bored and I have things I can contribute and I kind of wanna do something. And technically any money that you earn at that point is money that you really don't need. If you had enough to, to not work again and you can't go back in time and change the way that you spend your time and money. So I, you know, I, I've done this for my clients and I'm hoping that I can inspire a lot of people in their thirties, forties and fifties to just take a step back and think for a minute, like, are you, do you really want to stop working altogether? Because if not, and you're comfortable with the idea, whether it's in your same job slowing down or maybe doing something completely different, doing something into your sixties or seventies or seventies or eighties, even, you know, maybe you can take that extra vacation now. Maybe you can come home um, early and coach your kids sports teams. Maybe you can go to the gym. Cause I'll meet people that will say things like, you know, for I'll meet them for the first time. What age, you know, what do you want to do when you retire? And I'll say, I want to travel the world with my spouse. And then I'll say, when was the last time you guys went out on a date? And they'll say, "Um, uh, you know, it's been a while. Like what makes you, what makes you think that your wife's going to want to like travel the world with you if you're not paying attention to her now? Yeah. You know, I want to play golf five times a week in retirement. Well, you haven't been in the gym in three years and you just had your hip replaced um, and your sleep sucks. So what exactly makes you think that you're going to wake up one day and be able to play five rounds of golf on a weekly basis. So just trying to help people get better understanding of alignment and, and helping people realize that retirement may not be like the end all be all thing that we've uh, sort of accepted it to be in this country.
0: Wow. Dude, you're kill you're rocking my world right now. So do you, do you know Justin Donald from uh, lifestyle investor? Are you familiar no. with him? Nope. I'm going to make an introduction to you because okay. your, your book and his work like literally go hand in hand cool. Uh, Yeah, it's all around creation of time. And and his whole thing is like, you know, building assets that create cash flow. It's a little bit different than, you know, he kind of, it goes against the wealth management model a little bit. But putting that aside, the idea is the same, which is where are we spending our time to create value in our lives? And how many financial advisors are pitching, don't save that extra buck or make that extra buck today because you're going to make that extra buck tomorrow. Cause, and you need to have this. And, and it's funny you're saying it because I think there is a monumental shift that's happening right now around. And, and I think our demographic, our age, we're Gen Xers. We're probably the first group that's going to experience this where when we're 65, we're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm way far from done. yeah right? and, and I think our parents are probably the last generation where they're done. Right. I look at my, my parents and, my wife's parents and they're, they're all close to 70 or late sixties and they don't want to work. I, I think that it's, I think that we're in a different, and I, then I look at, well, none of them worked out on a regular basis in their twenties, thirties and forties. They weren't going to the gym and doing, you know, meditation workshops and all the stuff that we're all doing. Right. Yeah. You know, not all of us, but a lot of us are right. So it's, I think that there is a massive demographic shift in, from a health perspective. And and I love I love the way you're thinking about this because wealth comes in many forms, right? I have a friend, David Osborne, who who wrote a book called Wealth Can't Wait. And his whole thing is you have these different gardens of wealth, right? My family's a garden of wealth. My friends are a garden of wealth. Uh, my social network is a garden of wealth. My professional network's a garden of wealth. My health is a garden of wealth. My mind, you know, my... How how mindful I am. That's a garden of wealth. Yeah, so exactly. we have these different gardens of wealth, and we can tend to those gardens. He has eight gardens that he promotes, but it's it's a really cool way of thinking about it because most people, yeah, I'm going to go travel the world with my wife. It's like really,
1: <laughs> you know, you haven't done it at all. Like you know, yeah, uh, one day.
0: That's brilliant. I I can't wait. When when's the book coming out?
1: Um, You know, it's been 80% done for a year, but I finally just, uh, you know, just with all the craziness of the pandemic and everything, I finally dusted it off. And uh, so hopefully it'll be out like the end of this year. Um, I'll give you like an example of sort of just one of many types of examples that sort of show up or that showed up for me in this, you know, under this framework. So, you know, uh, my wife and I for, you know, for a long time now, when we put our boys to bed, Um, we lay with them for a few minutes. When they were younger, it was longer. Um, And then it was maybe just like, you know, 10 minutes. And now, like our oldest one, like after two minutes is like, okay, you can leave now. And I recognized probably like four or five years ago with my older one, I was like, at some point very soon, he's going to not be interested in me doing this with him. And I realized that, you know, for a number of years, I would be laying in bed with him, like I hurry and fall asleep. Like I got work to do. I want to watch this you know, show with my wife and have a glass of wine. And 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 then and then I had that realization. And I said, you know what, like I'm going to start being present. Like I'm going to start enjoying this. I'm going to start not wishing it would it would go by fast, not wishing he would hurry up and fall asleep, just seeing what happens. And, and that worked. And that was good that I came to that realization when I did with him because I, I've really leaned in even, even more with my youngest, but here's where it gets, here's where you can take it to another level. Uh, I had this realization that uh, hypothetically in in a, in in an imaginary perfect world um, how much money would I pay when I'm 65 years old or 70 years old or 50 years old? How much money would I pay to have one night to snuggle with the seven year old version of my kid right now? like when my kid's 19 or 29 or 49, like, I don't know about you, but for me, like, it's a big number. It's maybe like 10 grand or 20 grand or like, if it could really happen, like fit, like, I don't know. It's a lot of money. Probably a lot. Yeah. Like, gosh, to just go back in a time castle for one night, like with my eight year old, like who thinks that I'm like, you know, worships me. Like, you know, it's a mate, like, like one night with my eight year old. So I'm going to start treating um, I'm gonna start treating every night with my kids like it's a twenty thousand dollar experience, you know, because that's what oh, it, that's what I would pay for it in the future.
0: Wow. Did you just show up today to just like mess with my head? Because you're <laughs> messing my head right now.
1: <laughs> hey, uh, man.
0: Yeah, it's like your, was,
1: kids are still young.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I I I've been doing it, but I but I but not doing it as well as I want to. And I was talking to um I, I have a coach, Jeff Spencer my coach i don't know if you know him or he's, he's he was lance armstrong's mindset coach great guy he's an amazing speaker he an amazing guy you should i'll connect you with him if you like but um really smart guy he's mindset coach for branson and tiger woods and and lance armstrong he did seven tour de francis with them and we were talking about this around this idea of of you know what is the experience in your life that creates gratitude right because because this idea that gratitude kind of, you know, changes the our direction as far as how we focus, right? And for me, I told him it was specifically what you just said, which was my most grateful moments are when I'm just hanging out with my boys, like hugging them, and that one moment of just like arm around them, sharing time with them. And I didn't think about it from the standpoint of, what would I do 20 years from now to pay for that moment again? And the answer is I'm afraid to tell you how big the number is going to be. Cause yeah. it's probably going to be a really big number. I never thought about it like that. Wow. That's so cool. I love where you're going with that work and I can't wait to, do you have you named the book yet?
1: Nah, no, I can't think of a good title, but um, I've got good people around me and I'll figure it out.
0: That's so cool. Well, Hey, I know we're, we're, we're running over time here. Why, why don't we get it wrapped up? I'd love to have you, you know, let the get, let our audience know, you know, where can they find you? What's the best way to connect with you? And man, thank you so much for for so much gratitude for having you here today.
1: Yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. You know, I would say that, you know, people that are interested in learning more about Cadre now that we are virtual and sort of doing what we're doing all over the place. Like we went from 75 members that were almost entirely DC based um, in March of 2020 to now over 130 uh, from all over the country in Canada. And so we're going to, we're, we're, we're currently right now, like sort of planning what our hybrid model is going to look like going forward. But um, but people are interested in, in uh, learning about the organization, maybe connecting with some really elite, high-level CEOs, entrepreneurs. They can check out cadredc, uh, com, And uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, Facebook, same cadredc.com. And uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll I got, also got sucked into the clubhouse rabbit hole with you. And as I mentioned, I, I haven't been there for like a few weeks. And I, I, I think I'm okay with that. But um, I might be back soon. Who knows?
0: Yeah, cool. Well, Derek, my brother, this was such a, a treat having you. Um, guys, check out com. Also, check out Derek on uh, on Instagram and the other social networks. Um, we'll put that in the show notes and man, so much gratitude, so many knowledge bombs. I'm so excited for the work you're doing with Cadre and the book that, that hopefully is going to come out soon. Um, man, what a, what a treat to have you, my friend. I really appreciate it.
1: It was a pleasure being here, man. Thanks so much, Darius.
0: Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We listen guys, great shows this week, uh, and great shows coming up. We love you guys so much. Peace out. Leave us a review, tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers and after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. my lover.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Leila hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast. Or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.